plants are living things. Sometimes it's super easy to forget about that. Most people pass by a tree or a bush and they equate it to a rock. Because, I mean, if you think about it, what's the difference? They both don't move, can't communicate, and are generally unresponsive to their environments. However, every single thing that I just mentioned, plants do. They do move, they do communicate, and they are responsive to their environments. Recently, I talked to a plant expert who researches why there can be color changes in plants of the same species. Introducing Sierra Sullivan. My name is Nathan, and this is At Risk. Uh, why don't you start by introducing yourself and what you do? Hello, my name is Sierra Sullivan. I am a PhD candidate at Clemson University in the biological sciences, and I am in the Koski lab. It's a lot you got to say when you do an intro, but I study plants specifically. I like to look at plant evolution, plant ecology, as well as plant physiology. So I like to look at the different variation in plant colors specifically in their flowers and leaves. And I like to know why <laughs> they're different. And I wanna know these differences affect their interactions with the living and non-living things in their environment. And I know that your official title is an evolutionary plant ecophysiologist. It's mm -hmm. a mouthful. Yes. What does that mean? <laughs> So yeah, it pretty much means kind of like, it's a, I like to study like those three things. So the evolution of plants and then ecophysiology is actually a new word I learned because I didn't start my PhD knowing anything about plant physiology, but because my project, I needed to. And so I learned honestly, a field called ecophysiology, which is just combining ecology with physiology. So it's just the intersection of those three things together. And when I was talking to you online, you mentioned that you quote, and I quote this from the blurb <laughs> that she sent me, investigate the drivers that produce and maintain floral leaf and color variation, end quote. Yes. What does that mean? So always you may look out in the world, flowers aren't just one color, they're stripping colors. And so I like to specifically study though, when we have like just one species where the flowers can be multiple colors. And that is something that is called in like the field polymorphism. So there's more than one morph or form than one species. And then something new, which is my dissertation research is looking at leaf color variation because we are probably, you know, since elementary, we've heard about photosynthesis. We learned that leaves are green because they have chloroplasts, which have chlorophyll, which makes the green pigment. However, I became aware of, which apparently it was around in front of my face all my life, just didn't realize, but leaves aren't always uniformly one shade of green. And right. sometimes leaves also don't 
may not even be green at all. They could be like very dark purple. And right. this is called leaf variegation. So it's when a leaf is not uniformly one color. And so like with the floral color, I like to look at a few species where they are also polymorphic. So they have some leaves that are just completely one color green, and then some leaves that have more than one color of green. But again, it's like in one species. So it's really weird because you would be like, no, those are two different species. But according to, you know, the big jumbo of how we make species, the molecular stuff, how they reproduce, it's like, nah, it's just one species. They just can look very different. And we right. don't know why. <laughs> and you also said that you investigate the drivers. So I'm assuming that means the causes that form these color variations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, exactly. So in reference to flowers, at least, I mean, it's kind of the same with flowers and leaves because flowers are just modified leaves from evolution. But pretty much first with the flowers, you think about pollinators, right? Pollinators like to go to whatever color or like scent or smell they like, you know, pollinator preference. However, well, I guess maybe not too long ago, but there is recognition in the field that sometimes why we have this floral color variation can actually be because of stuff, non-living things in the environment. So like temperature differences and like a species range that could cause for differences in color, or it could be like precipitation or drought stress that could cause differences in colors. So like for right. instance, there are some studies that are like in more drought conditions in the one species, we have a more darker pigmented morph. So like more purple or like a deeper red, but in more well-watered conditions, you will have like your lighter color form of the morph. So sometimes it can be non-living things like that, like climate, or it can be like what we typically think of pollinators. And then the real tricky stuff, which I think is fun, is when it's both of them. <laughs> they like right. both help maintain this these different colors that we see. And how do these color changes affect the behavior of the climate or help them adapt to the climate or adapt to the behavior of other species? So like with regard to climate, if you kind of think about what it's like on an 82 degree, nice hot summer day, if you're wearing a white shirt versus a black shirt. So you're, you're going to heat up more in a black shirt than right. a white shirt because of black absorbs and like more lighter colors reflect. So for instance, the amount of heat that a flower gets, if it's like in a darker color and like out in the sun, that could affect like the plant performance or the flower performance. It can affect like the pollen viability or even like the ovaries and like seed production. So that's one way, for instance, non-living things. It can just be like, you know, how our bodies are if we get sick, like we're too hot and we have to like cool down. So climate can affect like the physiological or like how the plant functions. But then of course with like pollinator living side, it can be like, oh, for, you know, however a bee's vision works, it's like, I prefer the darker colored flower on this light background. It's easy for me to see or pollinators also can like associate and learn so they'll be like hey 
whenever I see this darker flower, that means it has yummy nectar. And I mm. like that. So I'm going to go to that one. So it's kind of like that preference and then just like, I need to live. What color will make me live better with like the least amount of stress in this environment? Because, you know, plants can't move. They're right. stuck there. So they have to do something while they're stuck there. And what do they do if they're faced with two contrasting ideas? Like they have to be lighter to avoid the climate, but they have to be darker to attract the bees. Yeah, so trade-off things like that. So when it comes to looking at it with an evolutionary lens and like selection, so like you just said, like we have contrasting things calling for different colors. Sometimes one thing could be stronger, like maybe pollinator preference is stronger or more direct and so that kind of wins out and kind of like a you know battle fight that could win out or it could be vice versa but sometimes some people have found that they complement each other i think i saw studies somewhere where like at least in their system they actually we may not think that they conflict like we think it may be more often than not they kind of complement or like I said one's like a stronger selective force than the other. You also mentioned that you use these color changes to discover the impacts that they have on plant and species interrelations and physiolog uh, physiological functioning. Can you give me some more examples? Yeah so for instance going out in the field first you have to like see if there's a pattern with color and like pollinators or with climates. And so if there is a pattern, that can mean that it's adaptive. So it's somehow helping the plant, whether it's helping it with like climate stress or like, yeah, climate stress or with like in order to improve or optimize its reproduction. So like in a species I'm working in right now, where it has leaf color variation, we're seeing that like in this polymorphic system where we have a plant that's plain and one that's, well, it has multiple colors that with increasing variation, we have more of like your normal plain leaf and less of your variegated or like multicolored leaf. And with elevation, a typical trend is that it's cooler the higher up you go and it's hotter the lower elevation we go. And so for that, for instance, seeing this color variation and seeing how it kind of goes with an elevation pattern and we have with that elevation pattern, temperature pattern. So lining those things up, those three things up, I have a hypothesis that maybe the difference in leaf color is an adaptation to deal with heat stress in leaves because heaves they transpire or they kind of do that gas exchange or like kind of like how we sweat that's kind of what transpiring means for plants to like regulate their temperature and not get overheated and not get fried so that's kind of one instance in which i'm using differences in color and i'm looking at to see if that tracks some type of pattern and then seeing if it does, what could this kind of mean? And how is it possible that a plant species could 
know that it should change color in a certain environment? Oh, that's a really big one because so, so sometimes it can kind of be strictly like genetic in which through like evolutionary forces like climate or pollinators, it changes through time where like, you know, kind of the thing with selection you learn as a kid is that survival of the fittest. But we have to have that genetic variation already present to be selected upon. Like it can't really come out of thin air, you know? So there's kind of that way where it's kind of based in the genetic makeup that is within the species. But then there's this thing called plasticity, which pretty much it's you have genetic variation as well. Like for instance, instead of colors changing like over generations in the offspring, you could have like, let's say a perennial plant for that plant over time. It doesn't die or anything, but it changes color throughout its life. And that's like really crazy stuff. You know, like, you know, like if you have a fruit out and it's sitting in it like spoils, it changes color, but it's, it's that same right. fruit. You didn't replace with another fruit. Right. So that's kind of like plasticity where like, Yes, of course, it happens over generations, but you can even see that change happening. Like, um, I think some variegated plants, especially cultivars, I don't know so much about wild things, wild plants, but I've had some friends tell me that they would change the lighting conditions of the plants and then, like, the area of variegation, so, like, the area of the different colors in a leaf, they would change as well. So that's kind of like a plastic response where it's mm. kind of like immediately responding. Right. So there's kind of two different ways that, you know, that can happen. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> and can you talk a little bit more about your uh, dissertation thesis? Yeah. So for this one, although I have a background kind of more in flower color, I just made a random switch to leaves because honestly, I just was looking in, you know, those flower book guides on how to identify things. Mine's is like organized by flower color. So I was just looking for something because, you know, I got to do something. I got to have a project to graduate. And I just found this new word, leaf irrigation. I was like, what the heck is that? What does that mean? And so, again, it just means a leaf is not uniformly colored. And in looking in the literature, you know, Google Scholar, sure there's like genetic work on it and you know with like agriculture they'll be like oh or like i found a new species it's variegated but there isn't a lot of stuff like what i'm doing where it's like why like what are the drivers maintaining it or like there are some hypotheses about the adaptiveness reason of it but like there aren't a lot of people looking at that because a lot of people kind of just stop at like the genetics of like what's the gene causing in the species but it's like i want to know okay how does that affect the plant's life you know how does Mm. that affect its performance how does it you know affect photosynthesis does it affect transpiration does it affect herbivory you know so that's kind of how that started and Pretty much what I'm doing is I have a field component where I pretty much just survey. I'm just counting variegated and then non-variegated plants of these species along an elevational gradients. 
and then I'll see, hey, this is matched with climate, which it kind of looks like it does. Does it look like it is a herbivore deterrent, which is one hypothesis? And it doesn't seem like it does because you know, you know, snails are can be herbivores, right? Right. But you know, the way a snail moves, it's you know, pretty slow. It doesn't like you wouldn't think a snail is relying on vision, like how a bee does, you know, right. or a hummingbird. So, because of that, that's kind of like usually the big one out in the field, like, oh, these are variegated because they can help reduce herbivory. But, like, with my species, which is a wild ginger, the um, genus is Hexastylus, that did not seem to be the case because the variegated plants were eaten, like, just as much as right. enough variegated. And then what's what brings me back to flower color is that the flowers of wild ginger are also variable. So, like, literally the whole entire species like plant from like leaf to flower <laughs> has weird colors mm. and so i also want to look and see does the variation in leaf color at all have any relationship with the variation in floral color so like are the darker flowers more common when you have a non-variegated leaf and the lighter colored flowers more common when you have a variegated leaf is it vice versa or is there no correlation? Are the flowers just doing their own thing? They're not under selection. They're just going off the rails, being whatever color they desire. Mm, right. And just a little bit off topic here. Why did you decide to learn about plants in the first place? Who? So when I was a kid, you know, Maybe not so much now with COVID, but I know something's going back, but we have field trips and botanical gardens are part of them. And my mom would garden a bit. And, you know, there's always that like elementary project you do where you try and germinate seeds. You put one on the windowsill, one in the closet, see what happens. I just always liked plants as a kid and actually like in high school, I was almost going to be like a language interpreter because I took Spanish and French for a while but then I was still in science I switched to that but then I was like oh I'm gonna be a um, biological engineer or whatever but then like in undergrad the first two semesters of chemistry I just felt like such a klutz in the lab like knocking over stuff like nothing serious there were no like chemical showers involved I was just like I can't do this this is I'm knocking everything over you know the like the like safety sheet of like this can cause cancer this could like I'm just like this is a little much and so um one of my classes it was split between zoology and botany in one semester and I liked zoology it was cool I learned cool stuff and with the botany half of course you know I was good in that as well I liked plants and I got into research because that professor, Dr. Janet Stephen, she asked me after I turned in my final if I would like to come with her to do field work over the summer, just oh, like nice. randomly. And so, you know, usually when you're getting that age, especially then it's like your parents are like nagging you, like you got to get a job, you got to make money, especially, you know, those of us who had to take out loans to go to school, it's like you're going to start paying this mm. back, you need a job. And so I was like, 
yeah, something to do over the summer and it'll be like fun. But then, especially when I went with her that summer, I was like, you know, you read all these things in textbooks and science and like, oh, we know this, this theory, this law, whatever. But going out there and I feel like I literally had an epiphany of like, this is what science, this is how we know everything we do as of now. Like it's people going out wherever in their lab doing micro stuff, plant people, reptile people out in the field. This is like how we know things. It was just that epiphany of like, I like this and I it rekindled my love of plants. So it was literally just that professor just noticing how I was doing in class and like shooting a shot, being like, hey, <laughs> do you want to do right. research? And it's like, yeah. And I've just I've been in it ever since and I still love it as much as I did years ago when I started. What have you learned? since then about plants plant life etc that's a very broad like so many things i there are things i've learned that i don't even remember but if i saw it like oh yeah i don't remember i mean i think one of the coolest things i still remember is that plants do communicate with each other like you know people are always like don't think of like plants don't have a brain like how they do stuff but I'm like it is living they respond to light you know there are some cool plants where they actually do respond to touch but like there's one in class because um do you know about Michael Rizal so like they're when they have these um mutualistic relationships with fungi so it's really cool how plants can like communicate with each other through those fungal networks and be like, hey, I'm being attacked up your defenses. And like scientists have detected that or like mm. these things called triotrophic um, reactions. So let's say that um, we have some, I don't know, aphids or like nematodes in a soil attacking a plant. They can call on parasitic wasp to come and attack that first herbivore and i think that's so freaking trippy to like out volatiles or whatever and like plants can call for backup like sure it's not talking and making noises like animals do and stuff but it like plants can communicate like they're like they're so weird and then they're very integral in their lives like even if you're a vegetarian vegan it's like sure you eat them but like your toiletry stuff, your clothes, like, I mean, rubber, tires, originally from a tree, medicine, like, right. sure, we can make a lot of medicine, like, synthetically, ever, but all of that stuff has its roots from plants, and, like, you know, it, it kind of trips me out when people are like, I don't know what this ingredient is in the back of his bottle, you shouldn't use this if you can't pronounce it, and, like, Plants produce chemicals. These chemicals are found in plants. You're fine. Stop it. Mm. <laughs> right. It's not like yeah. the main main ingredient on the aspirin is like sugar. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. And I can't remember. It's such a big thing. But I definitely always think about those um, triotrophic interactions and how plants can, like, communicate. And also, I love, like, plant defenses like both the chemical ones and then the mechanical ones like your thorn spines and stuff like that i just there's a lot 
<laughs> I'm sure. Okay. And why do you think that your research is important? So I think my research is important because especially with kind of what I'm seeing, where I think that leaf irrigation can be an adaptation to climates, especially um, temperature, because we are currently and still have been experiencing climate change. And it could affect, for instance, like how prevalent variegated species are I remember someone asked me, like, do you think there could be more variegated species or we could see species that weren't variegated becoming variegated? And I'm like, I mean, if it helps performance and it alleviates traits, um, stress, that would be really cool <laughs> if that could happen. Because, like, I think something that my research gets to, too, because right now leaf irrigation, it's just restricted in, like, tropical plants subtropical right. and then some temperate plants so with climate change like could that expand and then again begs the question of like why right. <laughs> why just those plants why and then of course you know plants aren't the other things that have color variation there are sal salamanders that have different colors and it's all within one species and the the jaguar like in like it has different names, so it's gonna be a bit like panther, black panther, like that's just a really melanated regular jaguar. It's just, it still has its spots, but it's hard to right. see because it's just really melanated. So anything that has color variation, which leads, you know, probably we can just call that biodiversity, the diversity of life. If it is tightly correlated to climate, especially any of the climate, precipitation, temperature, humidity, that has been drastically changing because of climate change mm. that's how i think my research fits in because learning about how this trait persists why it is here how does it affect the plant that can help make predictions of like okay this is how climate is changing so what can we expect to see in this plant or again plants that weren't variegated we can be like oh maybe this is why they're becoming variegated so just kind of having predictive power, what can happen in the face mm -hmm. of climate change. And if being variegated is so great in plants, why aren't all plants doing it? Yeah, that's another thing. I hope to like get an inkling up with my thing because for instance, don't see it in the really high latitude, like Northern, northern north hemisphere or like southern south hemisphere so it could be again climate or maybe you know for certain like changes whether it be like genetic or like kind of mechanical function there are certain changes that are like harder to make than others like right you know for some species based off their evolutionary past or you know just also they're like present some it could be more of an easier change to make whereas others it probably isn't like um variation someone did like a survey along the united states east coast and found that variation was really just seen in forest understory herbs not really in shrubs or trees so for instance like maybe it's something with that as well where like 
it wouldn't benefit a tree that usually, you know, they grow really tall. They're high up there. It wouldn't be that beneficial, but it is for understory. So right. I think some of it deals with like, it's not so much that it doesn't make sense for certain plants, but also it can just be, it'd be a hard switch to make for some as opposed to others. Right. More, more energy. Yeah, it could be like more energy resources or like, for instance, whereas one species, it's like, I just need to make three steps to become big. Another could be like, I have to make 30 steps to get there. It's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. So it's a different like risk versus reward kind of thing. Energy to output. Yeah, that's what I think. All right. And just to kind of wrap things up here, what do you love most about your research? I would say, like, and I think this is a common thing with a lot of scientists, especially, like, field people, that collecting the data is sometimes the, f- the funner part as opposed to, like, analyzing all of the stuff. And right. I'll say, like, my research sites, they're very pretty, um, especially because I'm in um more, like, acidic cove or rich cove forest. I'm usually my sites are always near a waterfall waterfall or some lovely flowing water. It's very calming. I'm not always like in the burning sun. I usually have some tree cover. So I definitely think going to my field sites and just, I take awesome pictures every time. I definitely, I like my field sites. I, I picked a good plant species. It's, it's not, you know, burning sun especially right. when you go out in the summer i'm not dying right. <laughs> so not, I like, not like tumbleweed trying to find tumbleweed yeah i'm not yeah because my pi he does research in colorado and then i just we had a seminar speaker today um dr emily burns i think burns are burns but she works in a maryland who is saying like how hot and sticky it is because her right. part of her research is in maryland so like yeah i'm kind of nice being up in the mountains where it's cooler because i got that elevation gradient going <laughs> right all right well thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to me yeah thank you for having me Thanks for listening. You can find Sierra on Twitter at SullyLutz13 and us on Twitter and Instagram at at @riskpodcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't hesitate to share it. Every person who listens to this show means a whole lot to me. Also, you can leave a voice message using the link in the show notes below. Anyways, that's all I have to say for this week. Next week, we have Reproduction and Coral with Celia Lido.